Genesis 50, this is the word of the Lord. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought at the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. And bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we come to your word And we ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us, Father, not only the suffering of this world, but show us your great design in and through our suffering. Really, more than this, show us your great design in and through the greatest suffering, the greatest evil that has ever been committed. That in the death of Jesus Christ, we have the greatest good, our very salvation. And that, Father, we would take comfort from your work, not only on the cross, but now in us who are united to Jesus, that you are at work bringing good out of all the evil and all the suffering that you may be pleased to send our way in this life. Help us now, Lord, as we meditate on your word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The promise of God has developed over the course of the book of Genesis, such that Abraham's son Isaac begot Esau and Jacob, twins, separated by a few minutes in their birth. And Jacob grows up, and now he has begot a family of sons who are consumed with hatred towards their younger brother, Joseph. And Joseph, of course, we know, is Jacob's favorite son. And this envious band of brothers wants to be rid of their younger brother, their younger brother to whom God had given dreams that he would be a ruler not only over them, but over the world. And they they grew tired of what seemed to be Joseph's self deluded aspirations. And so one day, as Joseph approaches his brothers in the field, the brothers see him and they say, let us assault this dreamer. And sure enough, they do. They assault him. They strip him of his coat of many colors, a gift that their father had given to Joseph. And they throw their younger brother in a cistern, a pit, until they can decide what to do with him. And they eventually sell him to slave traders from Midian who are passing through that way. Joseph is sold into slavery. But they, the brothers, return to their father and they essentially lie to him in such a bold way. They dipped the coat of many colors in goat's blood in order to imply that a fierce animal had killed Joseph. And then they proceeded as if all of this wasn't bad enough, to cover their lies and deception for 20 years. Joseph, meanwhile, has been resold to a military captain named Potiphar in Egypt's army. And soon, Joseph becomes the overseer of this captain's household. God's blessing and favor was upon Joseph, irrespective of his suffering and anguish, such that the captain's household prospers. In all things, all things are going well until the captain's wife falsely accuses Joseph 
of rape. And then Joseph is thrown into prison. And if you piece together the narrative in Genesis, you realize that he languishes in prison. He spends most of his 20s, that entire decade, in prison. And yet, again, God made Joseph prosper. And Joseph was put in charge of all the prisoners. Eventually, the king's cupbearer and the baker are thrown in prison with Joseph. And they have dreams which Joseph successfully interprets. And yet, Joseph remains forgotten in prison, languishing in complete oblivion. Two years later, the Bible tells us that Pharaoh had a dream no one could interpret. There were these seven skinny cows that devoured seven fat cows. And then a second dream, seven skinny ears of grain ate seven full ears of grain. And Pharaoh was informed that Joseph, this prisoner, had a gift of interpreting dreams. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, brings Joseph out of prison to hear Joseph's interpretation. And what he heard shocked him. A seven-year-long famine would destroy the world unless Pharaoh stored food for the seven years prior to the famine. And because of his wisdom, Pharaoh appoints Joseph second in command, ruler of Egypt under Pharaoh's authority. And sure enough, a few years later, after the seven years of plenty, two years into the famine, this worldwide drought, who appears in Egypt except Joseph's brothers? They have come down to Egypt to buy grain. And the Bible tells us that they didn't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And after a series of tests to see if their hearts had changed and whether they would sacrifice their youngest brother, Benjamin, to their ego and self-interest, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And the Bible tells us they were astonished. They were speechless. Because here, after 20 years, 20 years later, stands their brother, whom they had almost murdered. And he's alive, ruling the nations, providing for their, for their family's salvation. And what does Joseph do? He graciously takes his family, his brothers, and their father Jacob down to Egypt to live with him. And the Bible tells us that they lived together for 17 years, and then their father died. And it is at that point that we pick up the narrative in Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. But I want you to see the whole extent of Joseph's life to this point. Sure, he had been risen to the second in command of all of Egypt. And yet we can say that from a human perspective, he is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What good is power? What good is authority? If you have been cut off from your family, if you have been cut off from the earth, and no doubt at many times, Joseph cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been envied. He has been betrayed. He has been despised. He has been enslaved. He has been accused falsely. He has been overlooked. He is, in other words, the very embodiment of what we just sang in Psalm 88. I cry out to you both night and day. My soul is full of troubles. 
My life draws near to death. I'm as one cast off like dead men, as one lies within the grave. Deep into a pit you cast me, deep within the darkest place. You have made my friends, you have made my family forsake me. You have made me loathsome in their eyes. I'm cut off, I'm cut off from rescue. Deep distress has dimmed my sight. And sure enough, of course, from a merely human perspective, Joseph's dark story is a dark end to God's promise. There is nothing good that can come from the sins of Joseph's brothers. There is nothing good that can come from this. It's absolutely tragic, depressing, lamentable, evil. And there's nothing more that could be said about it, right? And there's no other way to look at it, right? Yes, from a human perspective, a merely human perspective. If we are to see the sufferings of our lives only with our human sight, we would say there is nothing good in them. And perhaps, perhaps you can look at your own life and say, my life in many ways resembles Psalm 88, resembles Joseph's early life. My life has been nothing but an unbroken series of tragedies, of sufferings, punctuated with a couple of moments of joy and bliss. We must not only look, however, at Joseph's life, we must look at God. Secondly, we must look at what God has been doing. You see, because in his wisdom, in his power, in his goodness, God has been working behind the scenes all throughout this time. From the very moment that Joseph is introduced to us in Genesis 37, all the way until the end, God, you see, has been working to bring Joseph low, 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 so that God would exalt him at the proper time, so that God, through Joseph, would save his people. I want you to take note of what's happened here. God works through Jacob's sons. These are scoundrels. This is a band of envious, murderous brothers. These are the sinners God is pleased to work through. This is the family, we might read Genesis, that God has chosen for eternal life. These these sons of Jacob, through whom God will bring redemption to the world. It's, It's this family. And the answer, time and again, unequivocally, is yes. Because it's not Jacob's sons who will bring salvation. It's not even Joseph himself who will bring salvation. It is God who saves. Beloved, that is the lesson to learn from this narrative and really from the entirety of the book of Genesis. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And God will save his sinful people. And nothing, nothing, not the sufferings of this world, not the sins of mankind can overturn, can nullify, can negate God's purpose of salvation. This is what we've been looking at, has it not been, all throughout the book of Genesis. God creates man with one purpose, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. God's purpose in the very original creation was to fill this world with worshipers who love him and obey him. 
What does man do? He sins. He disobeys God at the instigation of Satan. He squanders all his blessings. And yet, what does God do? God, although man deserves death, does not give him completely over to death. Man dies, but God says, I promise a redeemer who will come, a savior who will crush the serpent's head. Man will not forever be covenanted to Satan in eternal hell. Sin cannot overturn God's original purpose. What happens in the flood? What did we see in the flood? Yes, man cannot save himself. Man left on his own will fill this world will fill society with corruption, with violence, with lies, with deceit of all manner and all kinds. But God saves for himself a remnant. God brings about a new creation in Noah. But Noah is not the redeemer. And what did we see in Abram's story? That God promises him a people, a place, and his very presence. And what did we see in Genesis 15? That faith in God must rest in God. It trusts God. Faith does not try to accomplish what only God can do and promises to do. In fact, when we try to do what God can, alone can do, which is save, what we end up is with Genesis 16. If you want to know what is the fruit of our flesh, look at Hagar and look at the son Ishmael that came from Abram's loins. Because of his flesh, because of his doubting God's promise. No, God will give a son of promise and that son is Isaac. And then again, Genesis 22, God will provide the sacrifice that will take away the sins of his people. But you see, that's what we find here as well. It's the same story. It's the same lesson. God will bring out of the evil the brothers have committed against Joseph good because no sin, no suffering can overturn God's purposes. Beloved, what an assurance we have in our Savior. What, what comfort we have in our great and good God. God, as you see, engaged in a kind of divine jiu-jitsu where, where things are thrown at him and he takes all of that and he turns it to good, to advance his purposes. But we, we have to be clear here. Joseph says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God is not the author of sin. We need to be clear about that. God is never guilty or morally culpable for sin. And we say in the same breath, man is responsible for his sin. It is Joseph's brother's who are evil, who have done evil. Man may never say, we may never say, beloved, let me sin, let me sin that grace may abound. If God is so powerful and he can turn my suffering, he can turn my sins into good, let me sin and see what God can do with my sin. No, you are a fool, beloved, if you say that and know nothing of God's grace. And yet the teaching of scripture is clear, is it not? That God is so wise, is so good, is so sovereign. That God directs all things in this world such that he overrides and he overrules evil and all events. So that man, what he intends for evil, God uses for his greater glory and the salvation of his people. 
And beloved, where is this finally and consummately seen? Except in Jesus Christ. You see, Joseph here is preaching the gospel to us. That in the greatest evil, God will bring out the greatest good. Look with me at Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, a number of passages tell us of God's work in salvation. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is the word of the Lord. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned this from ages past, from eternity past, Peter says, on the day of Pentecost. He, he planned that Jesus would be delivered up that Jesus would be betrayed, that Jesus would be slandered, that Jesus would be crucified on the cross. He knew because he planned that Jesus would die. And yet, what about you, he says? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, both things are true. Man is held responsible and culpable for his sin. And yet God uses the greatest sin that has ever been committed that the Son of God is put to death to bring the salvation of His people. Acts chapter 3, verse 13, 14, and 15. The same is said. Acts 3, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. And again, you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Peter is saying again, you have done it. You have done it. You are culpable. You are responsible for this grievous and greatest of sin and evil. And yet, out of this greatest of evils that has ever been committed, God raised his son from the dead. And now we proclaim repentance and life and hope and comfort and salvation in him whom you crucified. And then one more passage, Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28, the believers are persecuted and they turn to prayer, quoting Psalm 2. And then verse 27, they say this, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. The nations have come to Jerusalem, to the holy city of God. The nations have come to the righteous and holy one of God. The nations have come and have conspired together. Psalm 2 tells us they have taken counsel together. They have said, we're going to kill him, right? Yes, we're going to kill him. We're going to put him to death. We will be rid of this son of God, this, this blasphemer, this traitor. He will be gone. We will cut him off from us. We will cut him off from the land of the living and we will triumph. And in all of their conspiracies, the nations have not reckoned that God's purposes 
were taking place. That God's plan was only advancing. That no amount of sin against Jesus Christ, no amount of conspiracy against the Son of God could retard God's purposes, but only were used by God to advance His purposes. Slandered, maligned, betrayed the Son of God here. Joseph is a type of Jesus. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him, but sold him rather for pieces of silver. In Joseph's case, for 20 pieces of silver. In Jesus' case, for 30. And from a merely human perspective, the death of Jesus Christ is an utter defeat. We have won. We have won. We have won. Say the demons of hell. What a loss. For the disciples, what sadness and sorrow. And you, you realize in Luke 24 that they, they're on the road to Emmaus and they, they tell this mysterious stranger who has joined them in the walk, traveling alongside of them, who is Jesus Christ, but they do not recognize him. They say to this stranger, pilgrim, oh, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel. Oh, how we had hoped in him. And it's because they only see merely through the eyes of the flesh. The Son of God condemned to die as a blasphemer, as a traitor to Rome, crucified on the cross. On the cross do you not see from a merely human perspective. This is the dark end to all of God's promises. But you need to see the cross not from a merely human perspective. If you do, Paul says, it will be foolishness to you. It will be an offense to Greek and to Jew. You need to see what's happening on the cross. It is here in the very death of Christ on the cross that is his victory. It is here that Jesus is victorious over sin, over Satan, over death and hell. It is here on the cross that Jesus Christ, as he's he's raised on the cross, is lifted up in glory. Fulfilling his father's holy will. Taking on the wrath of God. Taking away your sins and mine. His humiliation and death is what saves his people from utter and sure destruction. In the greatest evil, God brings about the greatest good. Our salvation. We don't glory in our sin. We don't, we don't say, oh, I'm so grateful that I sinned, that Christ could come to die for me. We don't think lightly of our sins, beloved. We don't, we don't think highly of ourselves. You see, because on the cross, we not only see our salvation, but we see what we deserve. And so what we say is in the words of the hymn, and can it be, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused him pain. For me, who to death pursued, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I, you died for me, me, I who caused your death. You are to see as Joseph's brothers were to see. 
the goodness of your Savior. You are not to doubt, but to believe his love for you. And yet, as we find, back to Genesis 50, as we find in our text, how loveless are the brothers' hearts still, even at this late stage in the story. Jacob has died. Their father has died. He's been buried already back in Canaan. And yet, how often are we not like Joseph? We, we think God is like us. His brothers thought Joseph was like them, insincere, vengeful, unwilling, unable to forgive them. They, they're weighed down by sin and their guilty conscience. And in verse 16, they, they put words in their father's mouth, their late father Jacob's mouth. Your father gave this command, they say, before he died. According to the brothers, Jacob told the brothers to tell Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And yes, they do humble themselves and ask for forgiveness and, and commit themselves to Joseph's service. But what does Joseph do? What does Joseph do? He weeps, we're told in verse 17. Joseph wept when they spoke to him because their hearts were still hard. Joseph has had compassion on them. They, they've been tormenting themselves for years now under the unbearable weight of their sin, hiding their envy, their attempted murder. Are we not often like Joseph's brothers? What would Jesus want to do with the likes of me? Why would he want me? I who caused his pain. I who put Jesus on the cross. In the words of Joseph's brothers. What would Joseph want to do with us? And, and, and hear what Joseph says. Speaking the word of the gospel. But Joseph said to them. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. Verse 19, excuse me. Do not fear for I am in the place of God. For I am I in the place of God. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Verse 21, so do not fear. Do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus Joseph comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear. I saved you from utter destruction. I forgive you and I reconcile you back to myself. And in some older translations in the authorized version, in the King James Version, it, it not only says I will provide for you, but it says I will nourish you. I will nourish and provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph says, you're going to live with me now forever. So that where I am, you may be as well. What does Jesus want to do with the likes of you? You need to see your Savior's love. Jesus saved you from your utter distress, death and destruction, which was your due because of your sins. 
Jesus forgave you and reconciled you back to himself. And even now, Jesus provides for you. Jesus nourishes you. He gives you true food and true drink and says to you, now you're going to live with him forever. Jesus, even now, intercedes for you, strengthens you, and gives you the balm of his grace for your guilty conscience. You see, what Joseph is telling his brothers to do is to believe the goodness of God. Joseph is telling his brothers that goodness of God that has sustained me, that I have trusted in for 40 years since you sold me into slavery. This is the same God for you. And that's thirdly and finally the message for you, believer. That Jesus, that Joseph, excuse me, is not only a type of Jesus that points us to the work and the mercy and compassion of our Savior, but Joseph is a type of the believer. Notice what Joseph says in Genesis 45, verse 5, verse 7, when he finally reveals who he is, his true identity to his brothers. Verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 45, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. God has done it. God has done it. These are God's ways. God has been at work, Joseph is saying to his brothers. Beloved, salvation does not arrive in the way we expect or desire. It arrives on Jesus' bloody cross in his death. And in the same way, beloved, the blessings of Christ and the Christian life are not given to us in the way we expect or desire. The blessings of the Christian life are so often forged in the fires of suffering, in the fires of anguish. And God, you see, beloved people of God, even now is continually bringing good out of evil. We, we want the crown before the cross or the crown without the cross. We want maturity without the Father's discipline. We want exaltation without humiliation. But what does God say? No. And so, beloved, what does it remain for you to do but to trust the Lord's providence and His sovereign plan that everything in your life God has accounted for already? Everything in your life is meant by God to draw you closer to Him. Everything in your life serves God's ultimate purpose. His greater glory and your salvation. Every suffering, every hardship, beloved, we can even say in a way that is unknown and mysterious to us, even our past sins. God brought good, the ultimate good, out of His Son's death. And what will He not do for those who are united to his son. God is at work bringing about the fulfillment of his promise. 
We can't unravel it. We can't unravel it. We can't clearly see what he's doing now. And yet, what does faith do? It holds on to God's promise. And it says, God is uniting all the various threads of my life, all the disconnected, the the, the seemingly random events and occurrences and hardships and moments of suffering in my life. He's uniting all of these into a singular thread. His greater glory and my salvation. And beloved, what can be said about the evil of this world if not the same? All the sins of the world, all the sins of men, all the course of human history, all things are advancing the ultimate plan of God in a way that we can't see today, in a way that is unfathomable and mysterious to us. God has accounted for all of human history to bring all of creation and all of history to its climactic omega points on the last day when God will be glorified by all and his people will finally be saved. And so, beloved, take heart from the story of Joseph. It points us to Jesus, the greater Joseph, that in his death and resurrection, you are saved and that united to him, there is nothing in your life that doesn't contribute to your sanctification. God is working all things for your good and for your salvation. And so trust, trust and believe the goodness, the wisdom and the power of God. He is at work and he will bring about the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of his promise. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, strengthen our weak will to trust you, to believe you. That Father, you take all that we are, the past, the present, the future, the good, the bad, and the ugly, our sufferings, even, yea, our sins, in a way that doesn't make us excused or inculpable. Lord, we are responsible for our sins, and yet you take the whole of our lives, and Lord, you use it for your glory and for our good. Help us to trust you. Help us to rest in you, and to rest in your power, sovereignty, goodness, and wisdom. And help us, Lord, to live in this way now and forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.